Dr. Leland Stillman is board certified in internal medicine and specializes in natural and integrative medicine. He majored in environmental health at Connecticut College and went on to earn his medical doctorate from the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He has a passion for doing whatever it takes to discover the root cause of his patient's medical problems. He focuses not only on the patient, but upon all aspects of the environment they live in, including their relationship with light, which we are going to chat about today. Leland, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. You have helped my wife, Colleen, tremendously, and a lot of what you had worked with her on was light. And so we're going to talk about light. Light is everywhere, and yet we underestimate light and the impact it can have not only on our sleep, but our overall health. And so I'm, I'm going to start there. Why aren't we talking about the connection between light and our sleep and light and our overall health and well-being? Why do you think that's the case? That's a great question. Light has actually been a part of the practice of medicine since Hippocrates. The Hippocratic Oath actually starts with, I swear to Apollo, the healer, because Apollo is not only the Greek god of the sun, he's also the Greek god of, I think it's music, which is actually another underappreciated health and wellness modality, let's say. He's also a healer or physician. So it's always been with us. In 1904, the Nobel Prize was given to, I think it was Niels Finson for the uh, innovation of ultraviolet light therapy for the treatment of, I think it was cutaneous tuberculosis but my memory's a little foggy on that. What happened was the commercialization of really our culture through mass media and advertising. And while it's nice to be able to be so connected as we are, the Achilles heel for people is that there's a lot of money to be made in selling supplements. And there's not as much money to be made in selling uh, light. And you know, supplements it, it actually is very small money compared to say pharmaceuticals or medical devices or procedures, an operating room procedure, even a simple procedure could be $25,000. A really significant procedure could be a $100,000 procedure. So unfortunately, you know, the profit motives in medicine being what they are, people have wound up being highly incentivized to uh, sell things that people put into their bodies, procedures they get, and so on and so forth. The margins for light therapy are very low. And partly that's because it's really hard to patent. I have multiple light therapy devices here in my room. And it's, I mean, it's a simple matter of finding someone in a industrializing third world country to make the, the schemat for you. And you can't really patent a lot of this because you can't patent wavelengths of light. And that's one reason why if you actually go out on the market, you'll find that many of the devices people are using from different companies look eerily similar. It's because they're ripping one another off. We can, you know, not here to talk about whether or not that's good, bad, whatever. It is what it is. The good news is that light is something we can have total control over. And the reason that I, I use it in every case now that I, I take on is that it has such a profound impact on people's health and well-being. And so we could think about light in terms of there's good light, there's bad light, there's sunlight, there's blue light. H how should we think, how should we be thinking about the different types of light and the role they play for us? Sure. So the uh, light exists on a spectrum. It's the electromagnetic spectrum at the very far low energy 
you have radio and microwaves, the same things that your cell phone and wireless router and so on and so forth use to communicate. Those can actually be a little bit disruptive to our systems, which is one reason why I'll also recommend that people minimize their exposure to those things in various ways. That's way beyond the scope of what we want to talk about today. I want to talk today about infrared light, which is just below the visible spectrum. And it's what we perceive as warmth. And then visible light, which spans from red up to uh, blue and violet. And then above that, you have ultraviolet light. And the ultraviolet light, of course, people know as what will give them a sunburn and also a tan. And so you have three different types of ultraviolet light. You have uh, UV, UVA, UVB, and UVC. Uh, UVA and UVB are the only types of UV light that get to Earth. UVC is blocked by the ozone layer. And in every single one of these frequencies, there are biological effects because really what life has done on Earth is it has to use light in order to optimize physiology. It's not passing up any kind of resource that comes to, to planet Earth or that it may encounter. And so that's how we use light therapeutically. We pick the frequency for the therapeutic effect that we want. And so walk us through the good and the bad with each one. So I'll start with, you know, natural sunlight, if you will. Lots of different opinions on how much is enough. And let's start there and walk us through the, the, the different types of light and how we should be thinking about them in terms of our daily consumption, if you will. Yeah. So one of the, one of the sayings or aphorisms of, you know, functional and integrated medicine that I really live by is copy nature. Jonathan Wright wrote that years ago, and it's a really good, simple way for people to think about what's going to work well for my overall health and well-being. What can I do that won't harm me? right? And that will build my resilience. So in nature, you have a 24-hour daylight cycle or day-night cycle, which varies based on the time of year, also based on the latitude. This is one reason why I'll tell people who live in high latitudes, you need to sleep a little bit more in the winter than you do in the summer. Because in the summer, you're going to be up for 16, 18 hours. You've got to have some time to recharge the batteries in the winter. That's normal. That's natural. You don't want to be spending a lot of time up all the time. That's very injurious. So first of all, the 24-hour day-night uh, day, cycle. During uh, the day, right, the sun comes up and you actually have a higher proportion in that period of time of infrared and red light in sunlight than you do of the blues and the ultraviolet light. Blue and ultraviolet shows up later in the day. From the light and photobytes. This technical term for red and infrared light therapy is photobiomodulation. Um, I'm just going to call all light therapy phototherapy, photo for light therapy for therapy. So with phototherapy, we know that red and infrared light actually help precondition the skin to help it be more resilient to and withstand the stress of blue and ultraviolet light. This is one reason why people who live indoors in a visible only light environment meaning fluorescent, you know, lighting and how, um, and, uh, fluorescent lighting and led lighting, they're not getting those red and infrared light and that they're so vulnerable to high intensity light when they go on vacation in sunny climbs or they go to the beach where there's a lot of light coming off the water and the sand. So you need that red and infrared light early in the morning to help precondition the skin to withstand those higher intensity blues and then ultraviolet, uh, rays later in the day. You do need the blues and the ultraviolets to actually time your circadian rhythms. Many people getting into this will hear excess blue light is bad and think, therefore, I should avoid blue and ultraviolet light. 
Well, you really do need those as hormetic stressors or, or really I should just say stressors because they are going to time your circadian rhythms. And we know that the, the levels of hormones and neurotransmitters that people produce in their bodies are actually directly proportional to the amount of light that enters in through their eye, which is why one of the other things I'll tell people is I want you to get a certain amount of light in your eye without glasses or contacts over them just to make sure you're having adequate energy coming into the body to time those rhythms and to set off that cascade of neurotransmitter and hormone release. Later in the day, the UV light, the blue light wanes again. That's why sunsets are so red and, and warm in color temperature. And after sundown, you really don't have much blue, uh, blue, green, or even yellow light coming into the environment at all. The exception to that is a small contribution from moonlight and starlight. And if people want to know what the sort of the magnitude of these differences is, because your pupil will constrict and, and, and dilate in order to accommodate light so that you can see, and it will do that very quickly. You can actually download apps on your phone that measure the amount of light in your environment. I'll have patients do this because I want to know what their light environment is like. We frequently find that people who are struggling particularly with fatigue, depression, anxiety, lots of other illnesses linked to neurotransmitter and hormone imbalances have a very dim environment during the day. We also find that they tend to have a lot of light exposure at night, which is then ruining their circadian rhythms. And so after dark, the only light in nature is infrared. You can, you're not going to have your circadian rhythms disrupted by small amounts of red and yellow and orange light which is why one of the big things I recommend to people is that they use warm color temperature bulbs in their home, especially where they're going to be after dark, because those frequencies are not going to disrupt their sleep and their melatonin cycling. And so that's really the, the last thing I'll add is that I always ask people about light pollution in their bedroom. A $20, $40 pair of blackout curtains may be the best investment somebody can make. The other one for sleeping environments is, uh, is baffles. I love to get people to put baffles in their bedroom when there's noise in their bedroom because it's often ruining their sleep architecture and they aren't actually aware of it. What's a baffle? Baffle is, it's a piece of usually foam that is, it, it muffles noise, it absorbs sound. They'll use them in studios in order to cut down on echo. Oh yes. In fact, I should really add some to my home office because I have very hard surfaces in here and you can probably tell there's a little bit of echo in here, but you know, one step at a time. I just got the furniture in, so. <laughs> Take it a day so, at a time. So you touched on this briefly, but, but I want to unpack mm -hmm. this a bit more. So wake up time. Mm -hmm. With, within what time period of waking up should we get exposure to natural light and, and talk about how this changes in the winter specifically? Like I wake up, like what, what's my window to get outside and go for a walk or just bask in the sunlight or maybe it's raining. Should we still, should we bask in the rain? What should we do? when we wake up? Great question. I always start with actually quantification. And the reason is that it really opens people's eyes, pun intended, to how much light they're actually being exposed to. Because you have to think about light as, a, as something that you're really getting a dose of every day, because you really are getting a dose of different frequencies of light. I advocate for a sleeping environment where you will naturally get morning light that will wake you up. Sometimes that's not an option in urban areas where there's say lampposts outside and you can't leave the blinds open or the shades open or whatever. But one way or another, I want people optimally to be waking up somewhere near sunrise. 
And then I want them to be getting some kind of bright light in their eye in that morning window. Coffee on the terrace, a walk around the block or into the park, something that gets them into the brightest intensity of light in their environment. What people will find when they're measuring their environment is that if you're in Cancun any time of year, right, and you wake up seven o'clock in the morning and the sun's just rising, it's going to be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of lumens. That's the measurement of light that I use in my practice coming in at you from the sun in direct sunlight. Now, if you're in, say, Stockholm in December on a cloudy day, in, you're going to have potentially thousands of lumens. That's a difference of a hundredfold. And this is one of the reasons why the further north someone is, the more adamant I am about some kind of light therapy. I'll get people to uh, purchase full spectrum lighting, bulbs that really mimic the sun. They have some infrared, they're, they're a, a bright color temperature, which means they're somewhere between three and 5,000 Kelvin, uh, which is the measurement we use to, to, to denote how much blue and green light is present in a light. And I'll have them you know, use those lights in their home. The reason I mention this is that if someone's struggling with their energy, their mood, and they live in a very cloudy place where they're only gonna get several thousand lumens by going outside, I may tell them that I want them to actually be using a light more than I want them to be getting that sun. Because in, in the end, everyone's got some kind of time crunch. And there's a lot of, even with working from home, you may end up having these issues. Like if I had a huge sun lamp on me right now, I'd be giving you a lot of glare and it would be kind of a weird picture. I don't want to do that when I'm on a Zoom call. So all of this gets tailored to the individual patient in my practice. Interesting. So it sounds like those, you know, you live in Florida now, if you live in Florida, you have a natural advantage, whereas someone in Seattle probably has a little bit of an up, uphill battle with regards to their light consumption. That's true, but we also have to think through, there's various trade-offs here, right? Like, let's say that somebody comes to me who is a uh, geologist and they're spending a lot of time in the field they're, and then they have a lot of work out in the American Southwest. Well, and let's say that they're very fair skinned. They are set up then for potentially, or certainly the risks of photo aging, right? Aging of the skin due to sun exposure. So they may need to have a, you know, more of a defensive posture by which I mean wearing a hat, using the right sunscreen, even using sunglasses, depending on the scenario. The first use of glasses to mitigate excess light in human history is the Eskimo and the Inuit. They would take walrus tusks and they would fashion them into these goggles that had slits that they could see out of. And the reason they did this is that the light coming in off the ice and the snow when they were hunting really impaired their ability to find and, and, and kill game and also and, and fish because of how intense it was. So we've always actually modulated light both up and down for our advantage in surviving. Interesting. Can't help but think as we do this interview via our laptops, everyone's working remote. We're spending more time than ever on Zoom calls. Right. What are some, how, how do you think about the health implications of, it, it's blue light, um, if, if, if I correct, that we're absorbing with being in our screens all day right, long. And I think of the remote worker too, to your point, it's like, all right, I'm working from home. I roll out of bed. I have coffee, boom, go to the laptop. And then, oh crap, the day went by. I know. Yeah. So I struggle with this with so many of my patients because of course the vast majority of them are some, you know, combination of in, let's call it indoor professional, right? 
My typical patient is not the geological prospector I mentioned earlier. So we, we have to understand the, what is the difference between our natural lighting environment and our outdoor and our indoor lighting environment really is. We also have to think about skin types, like I mentioned earlier. Pale-skinned people tend to come from higher latitudes where you need to absorb that sun and make vitamin D from it during the summer months. Otherwise, you run into vitamin D deficiency during the winter. The other thing I'll mention to people is the only way to keep a normal vitamin D without taking a supplement in the winter is generally to eat a very fish-rich diet. You also see that dietary balance. There's also a link here to what we eat. And the, and the sun we're getting also, you've got to be sure that you're adjusting your diet. I don't think that eating a low fruit and veggie diet in a high, brightly lit environment with a lot of intense sunlight, you need the antioxidants from the fruits and vegetables in order to mitigate that stress from the light. Indoor environments have been engineered to be visible only light. It's called VOL. And what that means is that the lights have been engineered to only emit light within that red to blue spectrum. And the reason is that we're only, in, or we're most, let's say, acutely aware of that visible only light. It's what we need to read. It's what we need to see our screens. It's what we need in order to you know, navigate our environment and interact with people and appreciate the art on our walls and so on and so forth. But that means that our indoor lighting environments are very low in infrared light, which is heat. And we've, that change has been made, right? The shift from really hot halogen bulbs and incandescent bulbs to LED bulbs and uh, fluorescent bulbs, because what people wanted to do was cut their heating or their cooling bill in this case, right? Particularly here in Florida. And they wanted to not heat up their homes too much with the heat coming off of those bulbs. We've also eliminated UV light because people don't really understand the health benefits of it. And there are some hazards. You've got to be careful with UV light. I'm very specific in my UV light prescriptions for patients because you can get burns. You can cause photo aging. You want to avoid that very carefully. So the key frequencies we're missing indoors in our modern life are ultraviolet, UVA and UVB, and then infrared and red. And I'm just going to give people kind of two basic scenarios, right? the Stockholm scenario and then the Florida scenario. So Stockholm, right? Somebody calls me from Stockholm. I say, all right, I want you to buy, first of all, in Scandinavia, they have a very strong tradition of sauna. So I would say, I want you to install a very strong red LED panel in your sauna because the red light's what you're not getting in the sauna, but you are getting the infrared light. Somebody who lives in, say, an apartment in Manhattan and says, you know, Dr. Stillman, I barely have, you know, room to turn around and like have a cutting board on my kitchen counter next to my stove. I say, okay, maybe the sauna's not for you, but you need a red infrared light panel. It's not more than two inches and you can hang it on your wall. Spend five to 20 minutes in front of it every day. Sometimes has amazing benefits for people. In fact, I was talking to somebody yesterday who had multiple back surgeries and was having trouble healing from it, having continued pain. She went back to see her neurosurgeon after a year of getting into these red light therapy beds, which are becoming increasingly popular and available to people, particularly if you're listening to this in urban areas, Dallas, Miami, Tampa, New York, LA, they'll all have multiple light therapy beds. Huge dose of red and infrared light, very powerful therapeutically, fully optimized for exactly the wavelengths that you need and absolutely amazing results. I mean, I don't practice light therapy because it gives me mediocre results. I practice with it because it gives me amazing results that I can't get with other therapeutics. She went back to her neurosurgeon after a year of using the light therapy bed and he said, what have you been doing? Your back looks completely different. 
on the imaging. And this was the only big change that she had made. And indeed, if you look at the photonics of the skin, you get penetration of red and infrared light to deep levels of the body that cannot necessarily be reached with other frequencies of light. And this is why. So I love telling people to go to these light therapy beds. And then I also will generally speaking, recommend a UV light therapy bulb or lamp. I like the Spur DD. It's the one that I use. Well, it's the one that I used when I didn't live in Florida to get that UV dose during the day. Now, if you live in Florida, I would say, make sure you get adequate sunlight to have a, a normal vitamin D level. That means getting a full vitamin D panel every once in a while. That's not just a 25 hydroxy vitamin D. It's a, you know, 25 hydroxy vitamin D and a 125 hydroxy vitamin D to see where your level is. And you want to, you know, you want to shoot for, I like to have vitamin D level between 30 and 50 for the vitamin D storage pro, uh, storage form, which is 25 hydroxy. I like something in the normal range, which escapes me right now for the activated form. And that's the, the long and the short of it. And generally speaking, I don't get into more detail with people than that because we're so busy going over everything else that we have to dial in. Their diet, their mindset, their lifestyle, sleep environment, sound, all this sorts of stuff. Sure. A lot to unpack there. And I'm going to go back to the, the screen. And so uh, Colleen and I are very fortunate in that we wake up and then we walk our kids to, to school in the morning and then we walk to work. So like we're, we're getting our, our natural light in the morning, but then we go to the office and then mm -hmm. I am doing this all day with you. I'm doing mm -hmm. it with you right now. I am on a screen. My meetings really aren't in person anymore. So right. the next nine or 10 hours or whatever it may be are spent in the screen. And I, I think a lot of people are in the same boat. So what can we do to mitigate the the effects of being on the screen all day is it a screen protector is it a blue blocker glass like what, uh -huh. if that's the reality for people are there things right. like i bought a screen protector does it i don't know if it does anything what, what right. should what should right. i do great question so the first question i ask when somebody gives me that question and i get it all the time is how many lumens are coming into your office there's a big difference between a south facing Manhattan skyscraper corner office, <laughs> let alone a Miami South Beach south facing corner office, right? And the windowless office that some office workers are doomed to in larger buildings, right? The windowless offices tend to have only five to 20 lumens max. But those corner offices with an abundance of windows and natural light, you have often 50,000, 100,000 lumens coming in, even in the shady parts of those offices. Those people actually have to put in blinds so they're not getting so much light, right? What I'll tell people is, let's be very strategic about the lighting in your office. Let's measure it, and then let's add certain lights in order to get you the frequencies that you need. Let's pick the light bulbs to supplement the light you're not getting. If, for example, your employer has put in hideous fluorescent lights, God forbid, that make you miserable and give you headaches, because by the way, flicker effect is something we ought to touch on. Flicker effect is the effect of lights to, to come on and off as power goes in and out of them with the oscillations of our alternating electrical current in this country. And so many people will see that fluorescent lighting or the lighting from their screen will actually give them, say, a headache or some eye strain. With screens, you can do a lot. Iris is, a, is an app that I've used in the past that you can download that will correct flicker effects. At least I'm told it will correct flicker effects. It's hard to measure flicker. 
it's mostly something that's sort of experiential. And then I'll also use things like iris or flux in order to change the color temperature of the screen and make it warmer so there's less eye strain. Getting back to the lights, I tell people to add, I tell them to add them in such a way that they're boosting the lumens in their office to at least 100 or more. It's hard to boost it over that sometimes without running into problems with, say, heat if they're using an incandescent bulb or without running into problems like screen glare or, you know, optics. You know, if people are listening to this, I have natural sunlight hitting the right side of my face. It makes the left side of my face look a little bit dark, right? You need to be cognizant of those things, potentially anyway. And so I tailor all that. But my main thing is I want people getting adequate visible light and infrared and red light. One of the other things a lot of people do is get a panel or a red light in their office that they can use when they're not on camera just to get those frequencies into their body. Got it. So Iris to, to check out your laptop screen, but also mm -hmm. th the role of sunlight in your home office or office plays a big role here. Makes, big it deal. Makes, it makes yeah. sense. What about at night? We're on our devices, we're watching TV. H how do we start to optimize for good night's sleep when we get home. I, Colleen and I have talked about this a lot. I think that there's a misconception or there used to be a misconception where you can just turn it on 9 PM or ready to go, ready to go to sleep. And the reality is if you have any sort of sleep issues, like sleep needs to start way before, uh, That's right. Prob probably in the morning, but let's talk about the nighttime. So when we get home at night, like how do we optimize for a good night's sleep when it comes to light? Yeah, the key to getting this right is understanding the basics of how the body times sleep and what sleep is. So the body times sleep based upon signals it gets during the day, which is one of the reasons why you want to get abundant visible light during the day. It's those blue and green frequencies of light that help tell your body it's day. And that actually starts a timing mechanism that will then get your body ready to count down at the appropriate time at night. After dark, what I like to tell people is you've got to be mindful of any blue or green light in your environment. Really warm incandescent bulbs, the old fashioned ones you might see in like a period movie now. You and I are old enough to remember what it was like to have only those lights that have a real warmth to them, like a candle-like quality. Those contain so little red, uh, or sorry, blue and green light that I don't see them creating an issue for people's circadian rhythms. So the first thing I want is to make sure that the lighting in the home is that lighting. There are some exceptions here that I've only run into because something like 80% of my patients are women. Women need to have their makeup right. And so their bathroom lighting may need to have a slightly higher color temperature so that they don't, their makeup doesn't look funny when they go out and they're under a higher color temperature light than that ambient lighting in their home. I've had some complaints from complaints that I didn't anticipate that led me to that conclusion. So there's always exceptions here. The next thing is asking, okay, well, what's my exposure going to be from my television, computers, or other devices that I can't necessarily control the color temperature of? And the answer there is blue blockers. The biggest mistake I see people making with blue blockers is that they buy the ones that have a slight blue tint. And you can tell these because they just reflect a little bit of blue light. It's something like 10 to 15%. That 10 to 15% is not adequate to protect your circadian rhythms. And so you really need a dark red pair of blue blockers. The easy test for how good a pair of blue blockers is, do they make blue lights disappear? I have a pair of raw optics 
on my desk in front of me and I can look at a police car and the blue lights on the police car disappear when I'm wearing these glasses. Wow. That's what's the brand again? Ra, what's the Ra brand optics. again? R-A-W. As in the Egyptian god of the sun. Oh, uh, optics. That's a company founded by Matt Maruka, who is a friend of mine who got really interested in light when, you know, it, it when everything else he had tried for his own health issues didn't work and had profound results as, as pretty much everyone does when they really fix their light environment. Look, I know we're all unique individuals, but should we all be considering wearing blue blockers at night? If we're going to be watching TV, if we're going to be on our laptop, if we're going to be on our iPhones texting, like it, it, suffice to say, probably good for everybody or not the case. Great question. Answering that question is a little bit complicated for me. I'm very, I like to tell people why I know what I know. I know that people who have sleep issues need to try fixing their light environment as aggressively as possible because they're going to see a benefit. I have yet to have anyone fix their light environment and get no benefit to their sleep. The caveat to that, right, is that you've got to live your life. There's more to life than just having really rock solid sleep. And after a while, you're not going to need to wear blue blockers to still be able to go to sleep and have a good sleep score. I know that from tracking my own sleep quality with and without blue blockers. There's also other factors in you know, your diet, your lifestyle, your mindset that are going to impact your longevity. So I don't have long-term studies to tell you how great the benefit is to religiously wearing blue blockers. And I'm not going to wear my blue blockers out at night when I, because the thing about blue blockers, you got to understand, there's not just effects on your circadian rhythms, there are effects on your immediate cognition. Wearing blue blockers, I tell my patients that it's the equivalent of taking an adult dose of Benadryl. It will knock you out. You're not going to be as sharp. You're not going to be as witty. You're not going to be as funny. If you want to be the life of the party, you got to be careful wearing blue blockers because if you're up here during the day, really smart, really brilliant, faster than everybody around you, you're going to be down here when you're wearing blue blockers. So it's all about trade-offs. It's all about what matters to you, right? You mentioned doing a, a lab to understand our, our D levels. Are there any other labs that we should be aware of that could provide any insight to how light it is affecting us or not affecting us, how sensitive we are, or that this is an issue? That's a great question. People need to realize that light is involved in every aspect of our biochemistry. Every chemical reaction going on in the body that you learned about in chemistry class or biology has a photonic component. Every single combustion of a sugar or a fatty acid or an amino acid in your body releases light, which is amazing to think about because what it truly really implies is that much of the energy your body uses and produces is actually photonic in nature rather than chemical kinetic. All of our major vitamins and minerals have photonic properties. And that means that I'm very aware of how these, these particles of matter are interacting with light. Let me give you some specific examples. If I see a patient who's got a low vitamin A level, a low beta carotene level, a low vitamin E level, or a low vitamin D level, I know that patient is going to be able to tolerate different levels of light and may have different reactions to light. For example, if someone's vitamin A and beta carotene levels and lipid peroxide levels are off, I will tell them actually to avoid strong light. 
particularly the blues, the greens, and the ultraviolets. Why? You can use, for example, beta carotene to mitigate a sunburn because it absorbs light in the blue-green ultraviolet spectrum. When you've got a lot of beta carotene in your skin, it's going to help you disperse and mitigate any kind of burn you may have. This, is, this was something that I, I tested on myself years ago. I took high doses of beta carotene for two or three months before the summer. I didn't have to use sunscreen once, and I never burned despite working on a boat that summer. So I got a lot of light. Lipid peroxides I mentioned along with vitamin E. Lipid peroxides build up in the body when you don't have adequate vitamin E around to neutralize them. And they really are a major marker for oxidative stress, which is a major marker for aging. It's something I track in all of my patients. And getting it under control is one of the number one things I want to focus on because high lipid peroxides are associated with increased incidence of cancer, dementia, metabolic syndrome, all the things that my patients want to avoid or in some cases reverse. So for that, I want them to be eating the natural source of vitamin E in nature is nuts and seeds, which also produce or are rich in an amino acid called arginine, which produces nitric oxide, which is produced by the body in response to ultraviolet light by upregulation of an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase. So if that sounded like an overly complicated explanation of are there other markers I get, the answer is I get a full nutritional panel on everyone because I need to look at the whole thing. There's multiple different interactions between light and vitamins, minerals, amino acids, et cetera, et cetera, that really I couldn't pack that into a 50-minute podcast. <laughs> so powerful when you use both light and matter to create wellness. And I like to bring this back to Einstein's equation, you know, E equals MC squared. It's his general theory of relativity. I mean, what he's really saying there is you cannot just focus on matter. You have to focus on energy. And that's why, I mean, in the functional medicine world in particular, a lot of docs don't know the energy side of the equation. They don't understand the effects of different frequencies of light. They don't understand the effects of sound. And they don't understand the effects of electrical, magnetic, and radio frequency fields, which are another, you know, secret weapon in my arsenal to get people better. Can't talk about sleep without talking about melatonin. That's right. So let's talk about melatonin, the hormone. Let's the supplement. What's your, your hot take on melatonin? Oh, I love melatonin. It is such a fascinating <laughs> chemical. And I say chemical very purposefully. So melatonin is downstream from serotonin, which is downstream from tryptophan. You need multiple minerals and, and uh, vitamins in order to make both of these. I find low and high levels of serotonin all the time, different patients, depending upon their presentation. Melatonin gets produced in the body in different organs, tissues, and different parts of cells in response to different stimuli at different times of day. And this is the biggest misconception people have about melatonin. They think it's the hormone of sleep. First of all, I think that calling it a hormone does it a disservice. It's selling it short. Really, melatonin is this incredible Swiss army knife. It is a signaling molecule. It is nature's most potent antioxidant. It's seven times, I think, more powerful than uh, vitamin C and E. Don't quote me on that because it's, it's been a while since I looked at that literature. But it's a very powerful chemical and its production around the body is very tightly controlled. In some tissues, it's made during the day. That's particularly true of the skin, which is why if you illuminate people with red and infrared light during the day, 
they will have higher circulating blood melatonin levels at night. That means getting red and infrared light during the day can improve your sleep, which is one reason why so many people will report to me that in their beach vacation where they got plenty of sun, which is rich in infrared and red light, they just knocked out at the end of the day like they you know, haven't in years. So that's the number one thing. It is producing the skin and the eye in response to light during the day. Then at night, it's released from the pituitary gland and other areas of the body into the bloodstream. And it circulates around the body, really turning on your body's rest and repair mechanisms. The way I think about this is that every night the body's got to clean up. Just like in a school or an office, you, know, you, you bring in the cleaning crew after dark because that's when everybody's gone. They can take out the trash without bothering anybody or disrupting class. They can scrub the windows without distracting people. That's why we have timing to different things in our daily lives, right? You need all of the organs of the body to be on the right schedule. That's why the light environment is so important. Because if, for example, you're turning on a lot of blue light at night, it's telling your eyes and your brain and your skin that it's daytime, which is confusing, right? Likewise, if you're eating at night or exercising at night, those are signals of daytime being transmitted to, in the case of exercise, your muscles, your heart, your vascular system, by extension, your kidneys, liver, all these other organs that are very tied into the vascular system have a rich blood supply, right? Likewise with your digestion, if you're dumping food into the inner tube during the night, you're telling the, the gut, hey, you need to extract nutrition from this. And just like in an office, right, if you were really busy with an important meeting running late into the night, burning the midnight oil, you might say to the cleaning crew, hey, listen, come back later. All this stuff on the table, we're not ready for you to clean it up. We're not ready for you to take out the trash. If you do that once in a while, it's not a big deal. If you do that all the time, it's a disaster. That's why people with chronically bad sleep get sick and have a shorter life expectancy. All of this is mediated through melatonin. Melatonin is the signaling molecule that facilitates all these interactions. And, and something we've talked about on this show previously, supplementing daily with high dosage melatonin is not the answer. That would be my opinion, yes. <laughs> because you've got to ask the question, why do I need this? What am I missing? I've yet to have anybody really go through everything I have to offer them in terms of a sleep protocol and not get a benefit to sleep. It may take me months, even a year, to really get an improvement on sleep that's been chronically ruined, let's just say. But still, you can still get there. Covered a lot on sleep. Something else is interesting as you talk about light and the connection to everything, let's talk about the microbiome. Yeah. Light in the absolutely. microbiome. Right. The microbiome, and I got interested in about 10 years ago, I was doing some research on it in medical school. The microbiome is the community of microbes living within the human body, on the skin, in your hair follicles, in your gut. I'm going to focus today on the skin and the gut, because those are the areas of the body that have the most surface. When you think about what's going on in the skin, right, it's being dynamically modulated by the light you're exposed to, which is one reason why any case of acne, psoriasis, eczema that walks into my office, we're going to talk about what light you're living under. We're going to talk about what light therapy we're going to use. We're going to talk about how long you're going to use it for. And we're going to talk about how often you're going to dose it. 
because you can knock out things like acne, eczema, psoriasis with the right dose of light therapy on a daily basis with no downside, no long-term risk of skin cancer, no long-term risk of photoaging, so long as you're balancing other factors that will mitigate those risks down the line as well. One of the effects there is really that light is modulating the skin microbiome. When you expose the skin to red and infrared light, you're changing blood flow. That blood flow changes the levels of nutrients. It changes the behavior of the immune system. We know, for example, that we can use red and infrared light in order to stimulate stem cells in the bone marrow. Those stem cells end up differentiating out into white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets, which is why I also use light therapy in treating people with things like anemia or blood disorders. So that's the first step or the, the step I would say for the microbiome in the skin. UV light, by the way, will also just kill microbes very effectively. I think of it as part of our natural hygiene to get a certain amount of UV light on our skin. When it comes to the microbiome in the gut, it's a more complex interaction because what you're putting into the gut as far as food, as well as meal frequency and timing is very important. You can create a dysbiotic or unhealthy gut microbiome within an inappropriate feeding schedule, even if you're eating a really healthy food. That goes back to this tie between if you're putting food into the gut at night, it's the wrong circadian timing. So I like those meals to be earlier in the evening. You wanna make sure you've got adequate fiber. That's one of the big mistakes I see people making. And then you've gotta make sure that things are moving through the inner tube at the appropriate speed, normal GI transit time. I like to see that at least less than 24 hours, more extended or prolonged than that. We start talking about how to improve the kinetics and the motility of the gut using various, various techniques, whether it's, whether it's something that we're adding as a supplement or a practice that we're adding, like say, changing their vagal tone with breathing exercises or vagal maneuvers and things like that. Because that speed also comes into the microbiome. All of this ties back to light because if you're not getting the proper mix of hormones and neurotransmitters in response to light you're getting during the day, you can count on developing GI motility issues. I, this is anecdotal, but I think people in low light environments end up with slower GI transit times. Equals constipation, equals microbiome overgrowth, equals IBS and constipation, all these other diseases of the gut. Fascinating. In closing, what's one thing that everyone needs to do starting today with regards to how they think about utilizing light for their overall health and well-being, no matter, regardless of location, age, like you got to start doing this today. Judicious sun exposure. And when I tell my patients I want them to get judicious sun exposure, I say never burn but get an adequate dose of light on your skin, of UV light, to produce adequate vitamin D. There's also many benefits to tanning. I don't want people to go crazy at the tanning bed because I just said that, but <laughs> alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone and endorphins and endocannabinoids all get released in response to UV light. So I will have cases where someone's struggling and I say, okay, look, we need a boost. That boost is UV light. And I, you know, it's just, you get amazing therapeutic results. And the real, the reality of the skin cancer risk is this, it's elevated in people who get excessive light, who don't get consistent light. When we studied melanoma in particular, and they did this in line workers who work on power lines, 
if you actually get daily occupational sun exposure, you don't have an increased risk of melanoma. It's actually the office workers who are weekend warriors and go out and get burned on Saturday and Sunday who have an increased risk of sun can skin cancer. There's also links to excessive sun exposure uh, in childhood and also to the use of sunscreens that are carcinogenic, which is why right. I only use zinc oxide sunscreen. So when there's no UV light out, you can get as much sun as you want and can tolerate basically because it's not going to burn you. And that's the number one thing I focus on with people, getting enough sun in their life. It goes back to Apollo, God of the Sun, physician in ancient Greece. This is a whole nother podcast, but we'll have to have you back to discuss all things EMF. Uh, mm. but, I'll just, but I'll just, really, this is the last question. I mean, it's this mean at this time. You mentioned power lines. So power lines, telephone lines, what are your, again, we live in society. A lot of people live in cities. H how do you think about without going down the rabbit hole of all things EMF? I, I will have you back just to talk about that. That's an episode. How do you think about telephone lines, power lines and, and distances and what's safe and what's not, because not all of us who live in the middle of nowhere. That's right. You've got to measure and you've got to monitor because if you are not doing that, you just don't really know what you're dealing with. And I use, there's plenty of like little things people can do, putting their phone on airplane mode, turning the Wi-Fi router off at night, using, for example, the fitness tracker uses the aura ring and I only yes. use it in airplane mode, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, you don't really know what your exposure is until you measure it. And because people are so interested in this, the price of meters has dropped precipitously. You used to need thousands of dollars to measure your EMF environment. Now the basic kit that I recommend to my patients is, you know, 300 bucks. It's currently out of stock because it's so popular. What is it? I'm curious. I get the, I, you know, I can't remember the exact name of it, but I get my meters from Safe Living uh, Technologies. That's slt.co. It's a Canadian company. And Got you it. can get great information on what your exposures are, and then you can actually fix those things. Because at the end of the day, it, you know, a lot of it is as simple as unplugging the appliance that's causing the weird field or putting whatever the device is in airplane mode. I mean, I've been shocked by what I've found. Like I had a printer that had an airplane mode. Why would a printer have an airplane mode? It's the most <laughs> bizarre feature on the install. But get this, when I put the printer on airplane mode and I measured the EMF levels coming out of it, it was still emitting a radio frequency signal. So what did the airplane mode even do? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's unplugged and turned off 90% of the time. So what do I really care? Right. But I measure, I monitor, I'll do things like make targeted interventions with patients where they measure their environment and then they'll track their, their aura ring data, sleep data, like before and after. And that way we can see what kind of effect it's actually having on them. Fascinating. We'll have to have you back to, to go deep there. Leland, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.